Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Michael Loeb. Michael is a serial entrepreneur. He uh, has started uh, some of the most successful companies this country has ever seen, and he uh, is involved in a lot of different things, and we're going to try to touch base about most of them. Uh, but Michael, where I'd love to begin is by talking about another Loeb who is a legendary figure in the business and who I'm sure means something to you that is completely unique and special as only a father-son relationship can be. So I'd love to talk about what it was like growing up as the son of the legendary yeah. Marshall Loeb. Well, thank you for that. And uh, Marshall indeed uh, deserves all the accolades because he was um, quite the legend. And I will tell you um, a story or two uh, to illustrate the power of the legend. And he worked at Time Inc. for almost 40 years. Uh, he was a senior editor at Time and managed every section at one time or another. And we, um, by the way, we lose sight of the fact of how important Time Magazine was. And in fact, in 1962, when asked what was the most important institution in the world, JFK said Time Magazine. So today it would be Google or something like that. But uh, then it was Time Magazine. That was the record of truth. And um, the intent of Time, by the way, a little like The Economist is today, is that front to back, it looked like it was written by an illustrated by the same hand and uh, no bylines, nothing. But he managed uh, every section of Time uh, magazine. And then he went on to effectively launch Money Magazine. And then he became the managing editor of, of Fortune Magazine uh, for the last 10 years of his career and enlivened that magazine. But uh, the story I'm gonna tell is um, that Marshall was known as the subject friendly journalist and that didn't mean pandering. It meant getting the story right. There's two sides to every story, and the subject had a, a story to tell. And um, he wanted that story to come out and wanted it to be balanced with other opinions, but um, he was respected for that. And um, he had known uh, well uh, every sitting American president while he was at Time Magazine. And one of the ones that he had a great friendship with was Ronald Reagan. And um, Reagan, if he really regarded you, and this was rare, would dismiss everybody from the Oval Office and it was just you and Reagan, no security, just you and Reagan. And you'd have a conversation with the jelly beans. Um, and Marshall had the good fortune of doing that three times with Reagan. And the third time was deep into his second term. And he had come to the conclusion that Reagan had his brain had succumbed to Alzheimer's, right? So here he is, Marshall Lowe, meeting with Reagan, saying the most powerful man on the planet, right? Because this was Mr. Gorbachev take down, you know, the wall. Most powerful man on the planet could not keep a thought in his head. And he had a critical decision to make and the decision, and he didn't have a lot of time to make it, which was, does he fall down on the side of his craft and become a journalist and report the real story? Or does he fall down on the side of his, of his friendship and his patriotism? Because imagine how destabilizing it would be if this news were broken that way. And um, 
he decided to fall on the side of patriotism and his friendship and wrote a very different story about Reagan and uh, filled in the blanks, the many blanks. And um, it was something that he didn't talk about and he didn't talk about until Reagan, after Reagan's death. And it haunted him about was that the right decision? Um, I think it was, but um, he really was um, in his own you know, time a legend and he really had access to some of the most extraordinary people you know, on the planet. And that is just one of many Marshall stories, but um, ask more questions. Absolutely fantastic. So where did that entrepreneurial spirit that you have come from? Your dad spent almost 40 years at one company, that's almost unheard of today. Today, you're lucky if somebody spends 40 minutes in one place. You have led this incredibly entrepreneurial life. I'll use this in only the most complimentary way, a little bit peripatetic, a little bit different than your dad's path. Where did that spirit come from? Did it come from your mom or is it just something that is within you and we don't really know where it came from, Michael? Yeah. Um... You know, it, it could be a little of that, and I'll speak to that in a second. <laughs> uh, but it, um, I think that one of the things my dad would do is he would bring home his stories, and he would bring home stories about Jack Welch, and he would bring home stories about John Malone, and he would bring home stories about Ted Turner. And you'd hear about these guys, particularly when he was managing Fortune magazine. You hear about the temerity of, of Ted Turner, that Ted Turner was going to Dartmouth College. I think, you know, um, his dad might have died, took over the billboard business, and then all of a sudden leaped into cable. Uh, and, um, you know, you hear about the audaciousness of the thinking of that. And while, you know, my dad couldn't do it himself because my dad in my lifetime, they had three automobiles. They would keep them. They would keep a car for like twenty years until like the roof would rust in, and then he would. And he'd do the same thing with suits. He would go to uh, London. He'd go to Seville Row, and he was very proud. They're like made of iron. They never wear out. And he'd always get like three pairs of trousers to go with one suit coat. Um, but yeah, you know, so they were that type of conservative. He kept the very first nickel that he ever had. Um, so yes, the anti-riverboat gambler, but again, he would bring those stories home and you'd hear about the courage and the thinking and the brazenness. And, um, you realize quickly that, you know, it's, these are all American stories, right? I mean, if in other countries, um, you know, failure is a bad thing. And it's, what's very interesting about entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs is you get into a room and you talk about stuff and they um, wear their failures on their sleeves just as proudly as they wear their successes. And they say things like, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, it seemed like a good idea at a time. And I, you know, now full light of day, I mean, what a dummy, how could I believe this actually would work? But, um, you know, as Edison said, I never failed. I just learned 10,000 ways how not to make a light bulb. Uh, you got to collect these things and these experiences. I, I, apropos to an entrepreneur, I do think it's born and not bred. Um, and one of the questions I ask uh, when I'm interviewing to discern that, I say, tell me about, you know, your lemonade stand. And if you hear, I never had a lemonade stand. Well, tell me about your paper route. 
And no, I never had one of those either. Well, tell me about your lawn care business. And if they've not done any of those things, they're not an entrepreneur because it does make an appearance early. And it's about this idea of this notion of commerce, this notion of I can make my own money and I can do it my own way. I also say about entrepreneurs that for them, okay, a stop sign is for everybody else, right? It's like all the other schmucks are stopping. You know what that means? I can go 10 times faster because everybody stopped. And um, there's something about, forget about the road less traveled, the road not traveled. And when they look at the road not traveled, for everybody else, it's a good reason why that road was not traveled. For the entrepreneur, it's like, that's a giant opportunity. Nobody has been there. So it's the red water, blue water thing. It's you want to be in that blue ocean that, you know, there are no sharks, no nothing. And you want to pioneer everything. I mean, think of if you want to, you know, a tale of courage. Um, and right, uh, the JFK book, Profiles and Courage, right? Uh, if you want to profile it, look at Elon Musk, right? Who's, you know, an interesting character. Um, I don't agree with everything he does, but think about, and he didn't start Tesla, but he was there very early. But think about this. You go to a banker, right? You go to a banker and you say, I want to borrow a billion dollars. They go, a billion dollars, what are you going to do? I'm going to build the next great American car company. And you say, oh, you mean the next great, you know, thousand mile an hour company? No, 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 no. The next great mass market car company. And they would say, young man, do you realize the last time that happened in this country was 90 years ago with Walter P. Chrysler? How are you going to do it? And he says, well, first of all, I'm going to make it in California. They say, California? They don't make anything in California except like stupid laws, right? So you're not going to make it in California. And what, what is going to differentiate your car? Oh, my car is going to be electric. And they go electric with giant batteries? No, no, no. Electric with little tiny watch batteries. There's going to be 10,000 in each one of my cars. And then they say, get the hell out of my office. Think about that, right? Think about that. And then think of what exactly... Did Tesla see, did Musk see? And I don't know if they saw it or it became apparent later, but I will tell you one story, Matt, which is when the propeller plane gave way to the jet plane, um, the people doing the inspections put the jet planes on the same inspection schedule as a propeller plane. And then when they opened them up and they opened the engines, the, the engines will whistle clean. And that's because a jet engine has like no moving parts, right? And a prop has an enormous number of moving parts. You look at an electric car, right? There's no moving parts. You can make an electric car with massively fewer parts than you can, you know, a internal combustion engine. And I think um, what that means, and we've seen the wisdom of this, is these supply chains that got very attenuated. I mean, it's crazy that, you know, the steering wheel comes from China and the transmission comes from Mexico and something else comes from Canada, something else comes from Taiwan, and it all gets assembled, you know, little bits and pieces and then assembled again in Detroit. Why is a car as complicated as it is? And the answer is because it can't, right? Uh, stated another way, engineers and architects build bridges and roads, whether you need them or not. We figured out machine how to machine things with such precision that all of a sudden, instead of making it one part, we could make it with 100 parts because we could. And then we would put it all together and it fit perfectly. 
But um, the folly of having a really attenuated supply chain from all around the world was punctuated, you know, during COVID. And I think now, you know, and repunctuated when we're seeing the misadventures of, you know, Russia and China. Um, and, you know, China is an interesting case and it worries the hell out of me, frankly. Uh, but, um, you know, all that is, uh, I think, punctuating this idea that, you know what, maybe our idea of engineering is de-engineering, making it not with more parts, but fewer parts, making it simpler and seeing if we get the same result. So um, it is, and that is, by the way, how entrepreneurs think. How entrepreneurs think is, you know, how engineers think is we're just going to push it. We're going to take it in the same direction and we're going to nudge it up the hill. And an entrepreneur says, no, 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 we're going to unplug and we're going to rethink this thing from the very beginning, from the wheels up. And we're going to pretend like nothing exists. Take it another way. Um, what uh, Henry Ford said is if I asked the American public what they really wanted, it would be a faster horse. Uh, but uh, somehow uh, real entrepreneurs are able to see around corners, invent stuff. Um, if you read about Steve Jobs, they talk about this one presentation that he had where he was introducing a phone and he was introducing, you know, like, you know, the Walkman and he was introducing a computer and he was talking about like there were three different devices, but no, they were one, they were the iPhone, right? So somehow, um, you know, Jobs put it all together in a magnificent way. And you went from a company, if you looked at Apple, like 20 years ago, it was bumping along at $5 billion of market cap, right? And now, of course, it's in the, it's in the trillions. But um, it's all about an invention, an invention that is transformative. Um, I, I, I rattled on, said a lot. Um, don't know if there's anything to unpack there. Um, if, uh, by the way, this is a universal signal for like, yeah, no, I'll let you, I'll let, I'll give you a lot of rope, Michael. You're, you're okay. it's really uh, interesting and really entertaining. So just to get us back sort of anchored somewhere. So it sounds like a lot of the stories that your dad brought home yeah. of entrepreneurs really stuck with you. And I, I'm going to guess, I know you went to Amherst. And there were two things that jumped out at me there. One is you were a psych major and the other was an athlete. You were a wrestler. And when you add those athlete, those attributes together of that sort of seeds of entrepreneurship planted by Marshall, your father, uh, by telling these incredible stories of these captains of industry, you then learn really deeply in a unique way about the mind and the power of the mind. And then that competitive spirit, Michael, which is also part of your DNA. And, you know, I, I, I was a, a little bit of an athlete, but I, I'm, you know, I was not the wrestling type. That's a special breed, uh, that type of one-to-one -one combat and what that means, not only physically, but also building mental toughness. Mm -hmm. Well, I would um, say about both wrestling and being an entrepreneur, it, um, was not um, uh, proactive as a choice. It was like, you know, a residuary of all the other things. Um, uh, I, uh, you haven't seen me standing up and neither has your audience, but I'm not that tall. 
so volleyball is out, basketball is out, swimming is probably out, uh, football is probably out. So what you can do in wrestling, because they had different weight classes, that's something you can do um, when you're not basketball height. Um, so that was addition by subtraction. And the entrepreneur thing, I joined Time Inc., um, followed my dad, not as a journalist, but on the business side. And it only took them eight years to get the common sense to fire me, right? And were it not for that, right? I'd probably still be working at Time Inc. Actually, you can't because there is no Time Inc. anymore. But um, uh, I was fired. And what I wound up doing is um, building the company outside of Time Inc. that I was trying to, as a side hustle, build uh, inside of Time Inc. So I had my liberation papers and uh, <coughs> decided that uh, instead of jumping off a bridge, I'm going to give this one a go because I could always jump off a bridge later. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm going to try this. It actually worked. Who knew? Where was and, it? and is that when you worked with uh, the formation of Synapse and with Jay Walker? Yeah. So Jay and I started Synapse. And what Synapse did back in the day, Matt, magazines and newspapers were renewed by a series of renewal notices that they would mail out almost at about the same time you would subscribe. And they were incessant and insistent. Uh, and uh, we replaced that with a credit card. Um, and everybody on the outside in says, ah, you saved a lot of money on, on postage and paper. What really happened is inertia right, was your mortal enemy. And inertia was, if you didn't act, you would not renew. And we turned inertia into your best friend because when we put it on a credit card, unless you canceled, you renewed. And it was billed automatically to your credit card. So time on file, uh, AKA lifetime value, uh, grew by about two and a half X. And that was the secret, I say that we, at the time when we started the company, there was American Family Publishers and Publishers Clearinghouse. Uh, they were the giants. They were about $400 million each uh, in revenue. And everybody said going up against them was total folly. And what I said, the entrepreneur said, I can go through the stop sign, right? What the entrepreneur said is, I knew intuitively that if I you know, changed the metric, change the dialogue, change the business model from a, you know, you renewed only if you took an action to you renewed if you didn't take an action, right? Uh, when I moved that, um, when I moved inertia from your mortal enemy to your best friend, time on file would grow. Uh, turns out it grew by about two and a half X. And I say that we won the war the same way Grant won the war because Grant had the North at two and a half times the troops of the South. And so as long as you weren't two and a half times as dumb, at the end of the day, you'd have won, the other guy had zero. So you won, right? So um, we didn't have to be smarter than American Family Publishers or Publishers Clearinghouse. We didn't have to be you know, um, as smart. Uh, we just couldn't be two and a half times as dumb. And as long as we weren't two and a half times as dumb, we'd win. Which is, um, which is, you know, exactly how we prevailed. And that notion that you created, really embracing technology before so many of us really even knew what it was, 
that notion of continuous service, that really changed the business. Yeah, it did. Um, changed the business. And you're right about technology. It was a huge technical lift because there were hundreds of magazine fulfillment centers. There was a bunch of spaghetti code, right? And we had to say, no, 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 do not send out to Matt renewal notices and bills because they're automatically being renewed. And that was, you know, a huge feat at the time. And we're talking about, you know, the early 90s. So let's jump ahead for a second because you just spurred a, a question. So today we are besieged by challenges around trust. And on our stages uh, at Advertising Week around the world, we've had some real interesting moments, primarily uh, involving Google and Facebook and various issues, the YouTube bad ad scandal that blew up on our stage in London a few years ago, you know, various data breaches that Facebook, you know, continues to try to deal with and preempt, but uh, to date have been unsuccessful in stopping all that completely. What's your take on the whole business of permission? And my take as, an, as a layman is in exchange for all the great free stuff we get to do on our phones and our iPads, we've effectively traded out all of our data. And I don't know anyone who has read the 18 paragraphs in a two-point font at the end of everything uh, and read it and agreed to it. We just quick, I agree, click, I agree, so we can move on. You were sort of in that space almost preemptively pre-tech. Yeah, no, I, I, look, I kind of agree with you. Uh, that, of course, is a controversial position. And everything has limits, right? Um, uh, and the fact of the matter is, uh, social media does have um, a job and a role and obligation to police itself properly. Um, that's um, a daunting task uh, with two and a half billion people being that, you know, have access to it. Uh, and the speed in which, you know, the real time speed in which everything appears. Um, you know, there is, and I find this very interesting uh, and saddening and maddening, but there's open questions about whether or not Facebook, you know, and Google and Insta and others are a force for good, like societally. I mean, you know, are we advantaged or disadvantaged by their very appearance? To me, I don't know how you can possibly make that case. I'm Googling things a hundred times a day. Um, and uh, there's such beautiful, I mean, Wikipedia, what, what a wonderful thing. I mean, you can find out anything about anything. Uh, one, of my, one of my kids self-educated on Wikipedia. School was boring. Wikipedia, I didn't know this, but they got a roulette wheel and it's just like spin the roulette wheel and find out about anything. So, you know, Kazakhstan politics is something you can find out about. It's, it's amazing. I mean, the world is at your fingertips. I'm reminded of a movie called Desk Set. Uh, and that was Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. I think it was in the 50s. It was in color. Um, and the premise was uh, Spencer Tracy was a computer expert. And um, you had Catherine Hepburn run a bunch of researchers. And all of a sudden, and again, this is the 50s, um, this computer 
computer expert brought in this wall, this entire wall, right? Bigger than your wall. And it had lights, it was blinking, it was making noise. And you'd have to type in a question and then more noise. And then you'd get a little card that spat out and it read the answer, right? The whole ribald comedy was that Catherine Hepburn assumed that for her and a group of researchers, that computer was going to replace them. But no, it was supposed to be a, a help, a lift. Um, however, that was the view of the world in, you know, 70 years ago or 60 years ago, a, a wall, a giant wall. And, you know, you would feed it in one question at a time. And after a minute, it would give you the answer. I mean, my God, it's now in the palm of your hand and it's instant and you can answer to any question. It's a miracle. Um, you know, does it like a lot of miracles, does it, you know, come with some adverse effects? I mean, the fact of the matter is penicillin does kill a few people. You know, it saves millions, but a few people have a bad reaction and they die. Same with a flu shot. Um, same, I'm sure, with the COVID shot. But you've got to look at the sum and substance. And to me, uh, there's no question on my mind about how magnificent and powerful, you know, social media has been. Uh, the policing of it is is a daunting task. I, I don't know exactly how you do it, uh, but the societal contribution net net is profound, you know, simply profound. So um, for what it's worth, that's one person's opinion. I, I will tell you a a story, uh, and the story is uh, uh, not to uh, uh, name names or drop names, but Tony Blair is a friend. And I'm having lunch with Tony Blair six or seven years ago. And I said, Tony, when did it all become so shrill? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, in my dad's day, right, there was Time Magazine, Walter Cronkite, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the LA Times, Washington Post, that was the record of truth. And it was all very balanced. There was no, you know, there was no Fox and CNN, right? There was no, I mean, and when you see them today, everybody says this, it's like, you know, looking at two different things, two different planets. Um, that there was, you know, it was thoughtful and it was considered and it was respectful of somebody else's opinion. And we've lost that. And when did it get all shrill? And the answer is when it got democratized, because we've gone from, you know, a half dozen super educated and thoughtful opinions, well-researched opinions to, you know, from six to 600,000. And now everybody's got a voice, everybody's got a megaphone and everything gets drowned out except for the edges of the dumbbell, right? So uh, the middle, I mean, it's boring, right? If we say, you know what, both sides have a point and the truth is somewhere in the, that's dull, right? It's like, oh my God, they're idiots. I hate them, right? They should be banished from the world. And, um, you know, the other guys are idiots. And that's, you know, it's in politics. The notion that the Supreme Court could be politicized, you know, is amazing to me. That's not what the Supreme Court is. They're not supposed to be Republicans and Democrats. It's supposed to be nine very wise, very erudite, very well-studied 
you know, people with huge staffs that can read the law and make an interpretation that made sense, but not, you know, it's five, four, because we got five Republicans and four Democrats. I mean, that's not what the system was meant to be. Let's talk about a little bit more about Synapse, because you incubated a little company there, as I recall, that went on and is still going today, Great Guns, and that's Priceline. I'd love to hear that origin story. Sure. So, um, uh, so Jay Walker, brilliant mind, brilliant fellow, um, and I think that the bullseye of his brilliance, brilliance is ideation. And um, on the other hand, people management and logistics, um, he finds kind of boring. And so after a time, call that about two or three years, I said, Jay, you know what? I got this, right? <clears throat> I know how to build this company. I, by the way, had much more of a magazine background than he did. Uh, so I got this. I know how to do this. You now think of our next thing together. And every other day, there was another next thing. And one day, it was Priceline.com. And I said, ooh, that's interesting. Now, when I thought of Priceline.com, my metaphor for that was Piggly Wiggly. Now, you're going to say, what? Okay, Piggly Wiggly is a supermarket in the Southeast. But Piggly Wiggly had three inventions that were critically important, okay? The aisle, the cart, and the checkout. Because before that, it was all like a John Wayne movie, right? You know, you walked in and you would say, I'll take the sugar, I'll take the coffee, and I'll take the nylon stock stockings. And some guy with an eye shade would put it all in a sack and give it to you. And self-serve, right, is what Piggly Wiggly invented. And that's what... Priceline was, was self-serve travel. And before that, it was always a broker, right? And, you know, Jay, his fertile mind, created this notion of self-serve travel. And that was, um, you know, the revolution that just about touched everything off. In fact, there was no internet back then. We didn't call it that. It was www whatever, fill in the blank. So um, it was very early in the curve. Uh, but that is, um, you know, sprung from the, you know, the genius of Jay Walker, who could see the future. And uh, that was, you know, one of the very first big ones. Uh, if you look at what it predated, it predated just about everything. So anyhow. Absolutely true. And, and Michael, you have the benefit of, of perspective. There were so many brands from that era when Priceline launched who didn't make it, right? You go back and you think about, you know, the early big internet brands of, you know, brands like Alta Vista and Lycos and Prodigy and Disney's Go Debacle. What was it about Priceline that gave it legs? And from your perspective, what did a lot of the early entrepreneurs get wrong um, that they could have gotten right? Yeah. You know, I think that in the end, the math has got to work. You know, the math has got to work. So, you can only have suspended animation for so long, but the unit economics have got to work. And with Priceline, you know, brokers would get, you know, like 6% of the sale, right? And so, you know, when you thought about it, if you remove the human and replaced it with machines, you know, you're taking out cost. The thing is, this really should work. And I think that's a, a a big part of it. Um, we're seeing a lot of companies right now that are 
trying to defy logic and think that they can, you know, scale their way into a better unit economic. That's seldom the case. I mean, it's it's kind of got to work. And, um, you know, you look at, you know, some companies and how much effort some of these new companies and how, I don't want to name any because I don't want to make enemies, how much effort it takes to do what they're doing and how little money they're getting for their service. And, you know, you got to scratch your head and say, how are they ever going to make money? And uh, those are the companies that eventually, you know, run out of VC capital um, or there's a business downturn or both. Um, and, you know, we've all been a little bit spoiled because we have unabated since 2008. There's been an expansion. And uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a wobble with COVID. Um, I would have thought it would have been a much bigger wobble, but we all learned don't fight the Fed. Um, so we're, we're, we were awash in liquidity and that kind of gave the economy buoyancy. But, um, you know, um, when there is a downturn, it becomes unbelievably violent, unbelievably violent. And I'll give you a personal story. My 50 cent founder's shares in Priceline were 16 on the open. And then months later, climbed up to 163 per share. Um, however, my shares, right, because I was considered as, you know, kind of in the center circle, my shares were locked up, right? Back then, the lockup period was a year. Goldman was the lead. By the time Goldman said, all clear, you can trade now, it was $1.28. Hmm. So 50 cents, 16, 163, and within months, a 99%, more than 99% down. And um, so that's how, it wasn't that Priceline was a different company. It wasn't anything except that, you know, this was a, you know, economic crisis and everything traded down massively. And we haven't seen anything that violent um, since 2008. So, um, you know, we should just know that at some point, that's got to happen, right? Because, and we are, we're in overtime. We're in extra innings. Yeah. And at some point, it's got to happen. Newton's law in a different way. So Synapse gets sold, and you launch your own enterprise, Loeb Enterprises, with Rich. Did you know then, did you have certain areas, you've gone on to develop so many new business concepts, really leading in so many areas and across so many industry verticals. Did you have ideas when you launched back in, I guess, give or take 2006, I wanna do this, this, and this? Or were it just things, Michael, that were unforeseeable that just arose? Well, Matt, let me, um, let me give you the, kind of the genesis of that. So um, first there was Synapse and then there was Priceline, right? And, Synapse really incubated Priceline. Right. And Rich Vogel, by way of example, you know, in the mornings he was working for Synapse, the afternoon Priceline, and the evening Synapse again. So one roof over our heads, one, uh, you know, employee base, multiple companies, right? And at the time, that was an experiment. At the time, would the people spit the bit or would they embrace it? And it turns out, Matt, 
much to our surprise, or maybe a little bit to our surprise, uh, people really embraced it. Why? Because even if you're working with a company that's growing really, really fast, um, if the scenery doesn't change, right, it, it becomes a little bit more routine. Uh, you know, the hills can become bigger, but if it's kind of the same scenery, it, it becomes, you know, um, it becomes dull. It stops being stimulating, stops being challenging. But if you can be that, you know, same pew, different church, right? You know, I'm still doing, you know, SEO or whatever it is, um, but I'm doing it for a different company. All of a sudden that becomes very, very interesting. So the fundamental concept behind Lobe MYC or Lobe Enterprises is that um, I sometimes describe the company as a Tootsie Pop and the chocolatey center is the 20 odd companies that we're building and the hard candy shell is what we call shared services. And the idea of shared services is everything a young company needs to build and scale. So of course, capital is one, but shovel ready know-how from back office accounting to research, to strategy, to legal. And then some of the stickiest wickets are technology. We got big tech assets and marketing, which spans from enterprise level to direct to the consumer. And there's a spectrum there as well, which is old school, TV, mail, field force, you know, um, to new school, uh, which is everything, you know, digital, SEM, SEM, you know, SEO, social, et cetera. So all those services in that hard candy shell are free to the companies, right? Free to the chocolate center with the objective, we just want success. Now in the venture community, and it sounds like I'm casting aspersion and I don't mean to, um, they talk about two in 10 working and uh, that kind of makes you a unicorn hunter because if it's a three X, it's a failure. Doesn't do a thing for you. So it's gotta be a 10X, it's gotta be a 50X, right? Because it's those two, right? That carry the mail for the other eight. Um, we lean in on this notion of success. Uh, for us, a 3X and a 5X is fine. I mean, for me, that's kind of like that athlete that gets to, you know, to be a, a D1 football star. A D1 football star should be celebrated. That's a great thing, right? Not everybody's going to make it to the pros, but in VC land, you got to make it to the pros. And if you don't make it to the pros, you're a failure. So um, the I think the things that we think are differentiators and arguably um, give us a higher degree of success, at least we think so, don't try to talk us out of it, uh, is um, number one, it's real because it's our money. It's not investor money. Two, um, it's, um, it allows the entrepreneur, uh, be it one of our ideas or an outside idea, to focus 100% of their time on business building. And if you ask entrepreneurs, they would say half their time is raising capital, the other half is making the capital they just raised happy, and the other half is seeking talent. Well, what if you had you know, 150% of your day back? What if you had shovel-ready talent? And what if you had capital? <clears throat> and what if you had a bunch of experienced people around you <clears throat> that have built it before and can be helpful in that way? So um, that's kind of the structure of the company and the theory of the company. Um, we are really built for success. We talk of ourselves as being entrepreneur friendly. Um, that's another thing about the VC world. And again, not trying to cast aspersions, but just trying to tell you how it is. 
which is um, with the VC, the company is not the customer. The money is the customer because you have fund one, two, three, four, and five. And you're hoping that your investor base is going to follow you in each one of those funds. You might have, you're going to make an investment in that entrepreneur once, right? Maybe twice, but not five times. So the customer is the money, not the entrepreneur. With us, uh, we think the you know, the highest predictor of success, of entrepreneurial success, is a prior entrepreneurial success. So our teams, and it's kind of a hybrid between an entrepreneur and a, and a you know, CEO, our teams, as soon as a project comes to a conclusion, we put on something else. And when I say we put them on something else, that's not fair. We show them the project list and we say, which one gets you, you know, enthused. Um, and, um, that seems to work for us very well. We often, not always, go for outside capital. Uh, sometimes we build something, go directly to a sale. Uh, but uh, when we do go for outside capital, it's only when these companies are unusually spun up. So it's not three million on a five million pre; it's a thirty on a fifty, or you know, a thirty on a hundred. So it's uh, it's it's a different model and. Um, the neat thing about that model is when it is 30 on 100, um, you, you know, your dilution is much less uh, than going through multiple rounds. Um, you asked another thing that a little bit about swim lanes. You said, you know, what do you, what do you, where do you go? And uh, the answer to that is, you know, we're kind of restless intellects, uh, or at least we think we are. We're certainly restless. I don't know if we're intellects, but we're restless. And um we have a philosophy, which is if anything is being done the same way today as it was 25 years ago, it's old, it's ripe for disruption. So we look at these great big industries and we look at these great big methodologies and we say, okay, time for disruption. Now, some, some things are a little bit too hard. Like, for example, we looked at insurance. And even though some people are doing very nicely in insure tech, oh my God, it is so big, so Byzantine. Uh, so daunting that we kind of said, you know, easier things for us to do, highest and best use. Um, so we kind of gave up on insurance. Um, but um, there's plenty of other things that uh, we think are very disruptable, and we try to jump in and try to disrupt. Uh, sometimes we're on the leading edge or bleeding edge of technology, but a lot of times it's just looking at, you know, things that should have been changed a long time ago. And sometimes, Michael, you're disrupting in different directions that are reflective of culture. Uh, I'd love to talk about something you mentioned earlier, which is Lockstep Ventures. Yeah. So um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so I, uh, a good friend of mine um, and a collaborator, a fellow by the name of Bonin Bao, and Bonin would be if he hasn't been on your show, he should be. Um, we, we, we love Triple B. He's a good friend of ours. Okay, Triple B. So Triple B. So in the wake of George Floyd, right, I gave Triple B a, a call. And um, I said, um, you know, Bonin, the murder was bad enough, but now I'm seeing my country murdered. And that's even worse. Um, and we, um, you know, we, we talked about the issues uh, we had that tete-a-tete. Uh, it was very interesting to get his perspective. Um, 
And, uh, you know, one of the things that Bonin told me, and I just thought this was a, a Chris Rock bit, but Bonin said to me, one of the happiest days he had, I hope I can say this out loud, Bonin, um, was um, when Uber came to town because now he knew he could actually get a car. And I thought, you know, this notion of taxi cabs not, you know, stopping for people of color, I thought that was just, you know, kind of a joke. But, but Bonin uh, told me, no, 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 I could not get from point A to point B. I would not be picked up by a taxi cab. Um, so anyway, we had that heart to heart talk and then it became, what do we do with this that's constructive? Um, we decided to do a little research, two statistics um, uh, laid bare, um, made a big impression. One was the delta between uh, white families and black families on net worth, right? So the net worth of a black family, median net worth, $17,000. And $17,000. And a white family, one hundred seventy-one, dollars right? So delta order magnitude. And the second number, Matt, that you know, kind of um, stared, up, stared at us was uh, the amount of venture money that went into black founded businesses. And um, I've come across a variety of numbers, but the range was 1.2 to 3% of venture money, right? You know, and people of color represent about 13% of the population. So way underneath their weight, you know, way underneath the weight. So uh, we said, you know what, we're gonna start a fund we're going to have this curation mentality, which is one of the things Bon and I have in common when it comes to startups. And we're going to only invest in black, um, in businesses that were with black founders. And um, what is so interesting is that we are finding companies much more mature. It's, it's kind of like you're, you know, almost in a different country. And um, in part because... And, you know, we can say malfeasance was involved. Um, maybe there's some of that. But I also think that, you know, the very first capital that a young company, a startup gets is friends and family. And if you don't have rich Uncle Charlie to write you a $100,000 check, you learn to do a lot with a little and not ask anybody for outside money. And so these very resilient companies um, we're finding and, um, uh, you know, they normally are pretty suspicious of outside capital, but um, you know uh, we uh, we have Marcus Clover, uh, who is the managing director, and you know when they when they see somebody like a Bonin, uh, and they say, "Here's a guy who was able to do it," that of course breeds a lot of trust. So um, yeah, that's very interesting. And my daughter Katie Loeb uh, works with Marcus on Lockstep, fifty million dollar fund, Black founders only. Um, still raising if anybody uh, wants to write a check, but um, uh, we are excited about it. And we're also excited about our methodology of curation, of really embracing, giving them, giving these companies, young companies resource, right? That they never had before um, is uh, really going to drive them to success. And in the end, that's what we're really looking for. We want these companies to be successful. They don't have to be unicorns, right? They don't have to be 100x or 50x. Um, if they're 5x or 10x, fantastic, right? So, um, of course, you know, 50 would be great. But um, if that is, you know, the measure of success, you're going to be disappointed eight times out of 10.
So um, we want to be um, uh, we want to be successful eight times out of ten. Not disappointed. Disappointed eight times. <laughs> I, I love that because you're really uniting the head, the heart, and the wallet uh, in a unique way. And uh, let's do a follow up. Let's get you and or Katie and Bonin and a couple of those companies that you've helped start. I think will be that would be fantastic. The other thing that is um, these people who start these companies, they're heroes. They're heroes uh, because they came from very adverse um, circumstances. Um, you know, I would say I would say the rule is they had a near death experience. Right. A rule was they were shot. Right. A rule was they were stabbed. They were hit in the head. There was something. I mean, it's amazing how they were able to transcend that. And by the way, without anger, you know, it's, you know, kind of interesting. And um, uh, the fellow that I'm thinking of, as I say this, is Curtis Martin. He is not an entrepreneur, but Curtis Martin is still, I think, number six all-time rushing um, leader, um, played for the Jets, um, had about a 12-year career. He's a friend. He's also raising capital, not for venture, but for private equity. Um, and um, Curtis Martin tells a story about how um, he came from Pittsburgh, one of the most dangerous neighborhoods um, anywhere, and that um, there was another guy in the neighborhood put a gun to his head and fired it and fired it and fired it again, misfired every time, misfired like 12 times, and then he ran away. But, you know, and then he said, but what he came away with that is not bitterness. It was like, you know what? God wanted me to live. God has a purpose for me. And now I'm not going to be afraid of anything. There's nothing that could put any fear into me because I stared death in the face and I didn't die. Absolutely great. And, and a great jet. I absolutely remember Curtis Martin. So Michael, just to wrap, I, I'd love to talk about one other thing that really uh, stood out from our uh, voluminous research on you. And that's the Loeb Center for Career Exploration and Planning at Amherst. Uh, that must be a great source of pride. And I, uh, I'd love to hear how that came to fruition. And I imagine that's something you're quite proud of. You know, I am quite proud of it. I'm quite proud of it because um, one of the things, Matt, that, you know, schools are trying to do, they, of course, are very interested and very focused on diversity. And that's very noble and very, very important. Um, but if a kid goes to Amherst or Yale or Harvard or you know, University of Pennsylvania, and you know, then their summers, right, are not put to good use, right? If they don't have a great internship, if they don't have, and there again, Uncle Charlie, right? Uncle Charlie's very helpful. He works for Goldman Sachs. He can spring me a well, what if you don't have an Uncle Charlie? How are you going to do that? And so <clears throat> what um you know, where that starts, where career exploration starts is really internships, right? Summer internships. Uh, and again, what that career center is supposed to do is sit down with you and say, okay, what, what floats your boat? What gets you excited? You know, let's talk about that. Let's talk about a bunch of options. And then helps with placement. 
Because if you don't have that productive summer, if you're not building that social capital during the summer, um, you know, if your brain is not working, you know, in that two and a half months when you're off, you're really falling behind. And you can get as much education from Amherst or anywhere else. But if you don't have that, you really are, you know, you really are beat behind. And um, so um, with the Career Center, it starts there uh, and then goes all the way through placement. But it's meant to be, you know, not a, you know, come in here when you're ready to graduate and we'll try to find you a job. It's really meant to start, you know, when you come into the school. And it's meant here too to be very, you know, you know, it, it's meant to be a curation. And it's meant to be a, you know, give you apprenticeships during the summer and help you build that powerful resume and powerful experiences so that when you do graduate, you've got a pretty good idea of what you would like to do, at least in the beginning. I mean, people can do course corrections all the time, but also you've got something that you can throw on somebody's desk and say, here's all the things I did with my summer. And this is why when I come to work for you, if I am so lucky, I'm gonna hit the ground running and make an immediate contribution. That's great. Well, that, that's a tremendous legacy. And, and I couldn't agree more. And I go back to your stories about, you know, lemonade stands and paper routes. And, you know, I did all those jobs and many more and and also attribute whatever little modest degree of success I've had to the internships that I did. Uh, I went to Emory and was able to work the Atlanta Journal Constitution and the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. And, uh, and absolutely invaluable. So what you're doing there at your alma mater uh, to empower that next generation and build those bridges from academia into uh, gainful employment via internships is absolutely vital. And that's a great legacy, Michael. Yeah, well, thank you. And, you know, we try to do something else in the center, which is not just placement, but, you know, Amherst is a small school. Um, and Amherst, you know, it's funny, there's a, brotherhood and sisterhood of Amherstians and that you probably don't have in a place like Harvard because it's so much bigger. And what we try to do is place these kids in an internship with somebody who is there in a senior position from Amherst. So you know what, they can take a special interest in the kid because we all can think of those two or three or four people in our lives, right? That made a difference, you know, the arc of our lives, influenced our lives, helped us. And if, you know, these kids that come from difficult circumstances get placed in these companies and they've got a friend, they've got someone who's going to bring them out to lunch and talk to them and help them decode the organization and be successful, you know, that's a difference maker. That's a huge difference maker. And, um, you know, if you're um, a freshman uh, going to be a sophomore and you've had that high quality summer experience that, you know, that could set you in a arc and a direction that um, will last, you know, for many, many years, maybe the whole of your life. Absolutely. Well, Michael, this was a joy. Thanks so much uh, for doing it. And I'd love to do a part two and focus on the lockstep initiative and uh, really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for stretching the definition of great minds to include me. I really appreciate it, but um, enjoyed it, Matt. Uh, I hope um, somebody got something out of this. I sure talked a lot. But um, anyway, uh, have a good evening.
chaptering, and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.